0: All right, you all can turn to Psalm 23. That's where we are this morning. While you turn there, uh, I should probably give you an update on my eye. I was uh, chastised last week for not filling you guys in, so you could pray for me on how things are going. Uh, I did go to the doctor this week, and unfortunately it hasn't gotten better, so I will have to have surgery on my right eye, probably April or something like that. I'll be out for a little bit. It's a, a, there's a longer recovery period. So, Would appreciate your prayers, Um, certainly prayer number one, that God would just heal it, because I really don't like the thought of surgery, so that would be nice, Um, but also prayer that the doctors would have wisdom and and praise, because it, it is really amazing when you find out what doctors can do these days. God has really blessed us with some pretty amazing stuff, so would love you guys' prayers for me. Um, We're going to look this morning at Psalm 23. We're going to take a break from Philippians because it is spring break. Uh, We'll get back to it next week. Uh, We're going to look at a passage that has a a very strong similarity with our passage last week. Philippians 2, 1 through 11, we said that that was one of the most famous passages in all of church history. Well, so with this one. Psalm 23 is one of the most famous passages in all of the history of the church. So we're going to look at this beloved passage again this morning. What I'd like you to do is look with me starting in verse 1 of Psalm 23. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, Psalm 23, God gave us this psalm. It was designed by him to cure us of a common fault, a a fault that all of us suffer from. It's a fault that I see at work every day in in my little cat, in in Maggie. Uh, Julie and I adopted our tabby cat, Maggie, about a year ago. Uh, and we have, we've endeavored to give her the best experience of life possible. She's an indoor cat. We, we take care of her. We give her the run of the house. She can enjoy any room she wants. She has a pick of any chair to sleep in. We defer to her. Uh, we've hung bird feeders outside of all her windows so she can watch the birds all day long while we're gone. Um, we feed her. We, we water her. We dote over her. We pet her. We play with her. Maggie has it great. She has an incredibly good life. And yet, despite all that Julie and I do for her, Every day is a battle between Maggie and I as I seek to keep her from escaping the house. Every day I have to do this little dance at the door when I go to take out the trash or check the mail to keep her from darting out. She just wants to flee our house. She is desperate to get outside, even though outside the house it is cold and wet right now. Even though outside the house, there is no bowl of food waiting for her. Even though outside the house, there is no comfy chair to sleep in. Even though outside the house, there is no window separating her from the neighborhood cats that would make mincemeat of her. Maggie doesn't realize how good she's got it. So she makes a foolish decision to always try to get out. She got out again last night. We we're out chasing Maggie in the dark through the backyard. Maggie doesn't realize how good she's got it because he, she takes her blessings for granted. Before I judge my foolish little cat too harshly though, it's been helpful to look at Psalm 23 this week and remember, I suffer from the same fault. Just like Maggie, I too am guilty of taking my blessings for granted, of not recognizing how blessed I am. And it's, it's far less excusable for me because I'm far more blessed than her. I'm a recipient of the infinite love and boundless grace of the creator of Yahweh, of God, and yet all the time I'm taking it for granted. I'm thinking lightly of the grace and love of God for me. I'm not living in the recognition of how wonderful this relationship with God is, of what a privilege it is. I take God's love and grace for me for granted. And when I do, I'm just as foolish as Maggie. When I do, I'm willing to exchange the warmth and intimacy of God's presence for the cold, hard reality of sin. I've been to seminary, I was discipled by Brian Fisher, I've been a pastor here for five years, and yet I often take my blessings from God for granted, and when I do, I am just as foolish as my tabby little cat. Now, I would venture to say that that that's probably a fault all of us suffer from. All of us in this room, as part of human nature, suffer from the fault of taking our blessings for granted, of taking for granted the boundless love and grace of God for us. We take our relationship with him for granted, and so we need help. We need passages like Psalm 23 that are meant to cure us of this tendency, to keep us from taking God for granted. Psalm 23 is meant to shock us, it's meant to jolt us, it's meant to wake us up so that we see God for all he is, so that we no longer take him for granted. Now, unfortunately, Psalm 23 suffers from its own popularity. You have heard or read Psalm 23 hundreds, maybe thousands of times in the course of your life. And because of it, when you hear it now, it just passes right over you. You you don't really interact with it because you've heard it so often. Unfortunately, if that's the case this morning, if it just passes right over you, it will not shock you. It will be so familiar to you, it won't jolt you, it won't wake you up, it won't cause you to see God and, not, and no longer take him for granted. So this morning, I have a favor to ask of you. I'm going to ask you guys a favor. I'm going to ask you for the next half hour to pretend, just pretend with me, that you are hearing Psalm 23 for the very first time. Pretend, imagine that you're hearing it for the first time. Not only that, imagine you're actually hearing it for the first time it was ever spoken. Imagine that we're alive 3,000 years ago living in Israel and David has just come back from shepherding his sheep and he shares with you for the very first time Psalm 23. Imagine that you're hearing it for the first time. Don't let it be familiar to to you this morning. Let it surprise you. Let it shock you so you can see what it was meant to be so that God can use it to cure our tendency to take him for granted. Now, if we're going to hear it as they heard it 3,000 years ago, we're going to have to face a real problem that we have. A lot has changed about the world in 3,000 years. Let me ask you, just raise your hands. How many of you at some point in your life have ever shepherded sheep? Okay, we've got about three people, four people, who, five people who've shepherded sheep. Okay, a few of you have shepherded sheep. Uh, let me ask you another question. How many of you at some point in your life have ever attended a king's banquet, been the guest of a king at, at a feast? Any of you done that? No, really? One person has done that. Okay, you and I should talk afterwards. That's cool. Other than him, not many of us, (laughs) because life has changed a lot in 3,000 years. The idea of shepherding sheep or going to a king's banquet is foreign to us. We don't live in agrarian societies anymore. I don't raise livestock, I just go to HEB for my food. I don't attend a king's banquet, I don't even know a king, I don't have a king. We don't live in that kind of world anymore. So to to see Psalm 23 as it was meant to be, to hear it as it was written originally, we're going to have to dig into some of the background this morning. We're going to have to explore their world a little bit to see what David actually meant in this psalm. Now, unfortunately, uh, we're hindered a bit by our own English translations, like the NAS that I read a few minutes ago. Unfortunately, uh, these translations have a tendency to spiritualize the psalm. So they use spiritual words like paths of righteousness and valley of the shadow of death. That I don't, I don't think that's quite what David had in mind. He was speaking about very concrete realities. He's painting very literal pictures here of shepherding and of attending a banquet. So what I'd like to do this morning is I want to walk you through my own translation. I've spent some time studying this trying to get back to the original intent David had in mind. Now, I am a city boy, and, and I have never attended a king's banquet, so I'm a little limited here. But as best as I can, I want to walk you back through Psalm 23 and help you see it as it was intended. What did David mean when he wrote this psalm? Let me start with a little bit of a survey so we kind of see how this psalm fits together. Uh, psalm 23 is what we call a confidence song. It's an expression of the author's confidence in the Lord and Yahweh. Uh, Confidence songs are written all in present tense. There's no past tense or future tense verbs here because David's not speaking about past blessings from God. He's not speaking about blessings he expects in the future. By using the present tense, he's speaking about the constant blessings of God always. He's talking about the fact of his experience, his constant experience, that he is always blessed by God, past, present, and future. So that's the idea of this psalm. The constant experience of David under God's blessings give him confidence. Now this particular confidence song comes in two parts. First four verses are going to to cast David's confidence in the light of of a sheep-shepherd metaphor. Then David will switch to the metaphor of a king's banquet, of a royal feast, So that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to walk you through this line by line to help you see how shocking Psalm 23 was meant to be as it was originally given. The first line reminds us that David is the author of this psalm. That's very fitting. David is uniquely qualified to write Psalm 23 because in the course of his life, he was both shepherd and king. So so he knows of what he writes very well. Now, the next line that David speaks is really the most famous line in the whole psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. That's the big one. That's the one we always remember. The Lord is my shepherd. Now this concept, this idea of the Lord being our shepherd, that was not foreign in, in the Old Testament. The, the, oftentimes it talks about how the Lord is a shepherd of, of a nation, of, of groups of people. But this passage, Psalm 23, is the only place in your entire Old Testament where it gets personal. This is the only passage that says, the Lord is my shepherd. Everywhere else, it's about community, about us as a nation or as a group being connected to the Lord as our shepherd. This is the only place where David says, yeah, but it's about me individually too. The Lord is my personal shepherd to me as an individual. I think this passage is a helpful balance from last week. Remember, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, what did we learn is essential to the Christian life? Community. Community. Our unity together as relating to the Lord as a group of people is essential to our Christian life. That is true, but also equally essential is our individual relationship with God. That's the balance of the Christian life. We're related to God both as individuals and as a community. You need both. If you're lacking either one, you're in big trouble. So you need both. So this week we're looking at our individual relationships with God, how he relates to us personally. Now, fortunately, David is not the only one who can say, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus came and walked the earth, and he told us while he was walking the earth that he is a shepherd to all who believe. Jesus is a shepherd who, to all who believe in him as Savior. Okay, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins on the cross and rose from the dead, then Jesus is your shepherd. If you, if you haven't yet chosen to believe that message, to trust in Jesus as your shepherd, you need to realize Psalm 23 is not true of you yet. Psalm 23 is not true of the, Lord, of the whole world. The, the Lord is not shepherd of the world. We are not born into the Lord's sheepfold. We're born separated from God because of sin, and we can't earn our way back to him. We can't earn our way into his flock. You become part of the flock of God through faith. Through believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. So this morning, if you realize, if you if you think about it, you realize I've never trusted in God that way. I've never said I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. Psalm twenty three isn't yet true of you, but it can be true right now. There's nothing you need to do. You simply need to choose to believe that Jesus really did die for your sins. And rise from the dead. If there's anything holding you back from that belief, if there's an intellectual objection or something in your past that's keeping you from trusting in Jesus as your Savior, please come talk to me or someone else here this morning. That's the most important thing. That's how you enter into Psalm 23. That's how it becomes true for you. Now, for all of us who have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, this line is very good news. This line is telling us that Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, the almighty, infinite, sovereign one, has chosen to be a shepherd to each of us individually. He is my shepherd, just as he is a shepherd to each of you. Now, it's hard for us to really wrap our minds around what incredible grace that is, what a privilege that is. We have to be reminded of of what shepherding was in the ancient world. Shepherding was an incredibly intensive activity. It was an occupation that demanded all of your time. A shepherd in the ancient world was always with his sheep, not just during the day, taking them to pasture, protecting them from enemies, but even at night, shepherds slept at at the gate of the sheepfold to keep any predators from coming inside. Shepherds condescended to the sheep. They lived their lives with the sheep, caring for the sheep individually. Shepherds in the ancient world and even in agrarian societies today knew their sheep so well that they had individual names for every one of them. They knew every sheep by name. They watched over and and took care of the needs of every single individual sheep. So what an incredible privilege that the infinite God of the universe has chosen to be that and do that for you, to know you by name, to be with you always, to take intimate private care of you. So this line is meant to express an incredibly great thing, an incredibly marvelous thing. Yahweh, the infinite creator, has chosen to be my shepherd. But the line also expresses some bad news, doesn't it? If God is a shepherd, what does that imply about me? I'm a sheep. In the ancient world, sheep were very valuable. Sheep was a source of wool and meat and milk. You often measured your wealth by the number of sheep that you had. So sheep are valuable, but it was never, ever a compliment to compare someone to a sheep. See, uh, sheep are by nature defenseless. Um, Most sheep don't have horns, they don't have fangs, no claws, no bulk like a cow or a horse. They can't defend themselves. Sheep are vulnerable to just about anything. Certainly something like a lion or a wolf or a bear can take out a sheep. But they're so vulnerable, a big bird can kill a sheep. Seriously, they're so vulnerable actually that that flies will bother a sheep. They'll they'll fly around their nose and, and the sheep, you know, they can't do anything about those flies and so they'll be driven mad and they'll begin to pound their head into a tree until they die. Sheep can be taken out by flies. They are that pathetic. They're that vulnerable. They're defenseless. Second, uh, sheep are unaware of hidden dangers. Sheep don't know what's going on around them. They're unaware of predators hiding. They're unaware of poisonous plants. That was one of the real problems in the ancient world. A sheep will go into a pasture and eat everything, including the plants that will kill them. They don't know any better. They're unaware of hidden dangers. Uh, They're also unable to forage for themselves. Uh, You you can't trust a sheep to go find good pasture land. Uh, Even if somehow, randomly, by chance, they found a good pasture of food, sheep aren't the wisest of creatures, so they'll just keep walking. Sheep will just keep looking for what's over the next rise until they've run out of whatever they were trying to eat. They can't provide for themselves. Finally, sheep are prone to herd mentality. Um, If a squirrel jumps into the middle of a herd of sheep, they'll all jump as if it was a lion. If one sheep goes over a cliff, the rest will follow. Why not? So when we look at sheep (laughs) and when we look at the fact that we're compared to sheep, it should humble us. It should shock us a little bit. You know, here in 21st century America in a town like College Station, we see ourselves as remarkably adept. We're strong, we're educated, we're self-reliant, we know what we're doing. We see ourselves as self-sufficient, and yet Psalm 23 is reminding us, no, we are not. For all that we have, for all that we've learned, for all that we're capable of, we are always nothing more than sheep, defenseless vulnerable, weak, and foolish, constantly dependent on the good graces of our shepherd. So that's the bad news of this. There's good news. Yahweh is my shepherd. There's bad news, but I'm a sheep. That's where David starts. And then he's going to continue to build this out. Uh, He's going to tell us the Lord is my shepherd. And then he's going to tell us what the result is. The Lord is my shepherd. Here's what follows. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I do not suffer want. Now, I used to read this line wrong. In the NES, it says, I shall not want. I used to take it like a command. The Lord is my shepherd, so I better not be in want. I should not want other things. I felt guilty when I read Psalm 23. But that's not at all what David has in mind here. Uh, it, literally, it's I, I do not suffer from want. There's, there's nothing that I lack in life. Because the Lord is my shepherd, because Yahweh is my shepherd, uh, I am not lacking for anything. Every need I have is taken care of. Every desire, every craving I have, he provides This is meant to be an incredibly shocking statement. We look at this and think, David, are you serious? Because the Lord is your shepherd, you do not suffer lack of anything. There is no need that is lacking in your life. You are completely satisfied. You are completely content in life. David says, yes. Because I have the best possible shepherd, I'm completely satisfied, I'm completely content, and let me prove it to you. And that's what David's going to do in the next three verses, because it is a shocking statement, to say, I don't need anything, I don't want anything, I'm totally taken care of, that's shocking, so David is going to give us proof. The next three verses are going to prove, explain how this can be. How is it that God could have so taken care of David that he suffers from no lack of anything? So let me walk you through these lines, two through four. How do they prove it? Well, uh, verse number two starts, he makes it so I can lie down in lush pastures. Now, again, I, I misread it in the NAS for, for the longest time. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. I took it as like a command. God puts me on my butt in green pastures. He makes me sit there. But that's not at all the idea here. The sense is he makes me free to lie down. He makes me comfortable to lie down. See, it's very, very hard to get a sheep willing to lie down in the middle of the day. If you want your sheep to rest, if you want your sheep to be at peace, you have to go to a lot of work as a shepherd. Number one, you have to provide all of their food and water to take complete care of of their need for food and water. That meant that the shepherd woke up very early while it was still dark, led his sheep out to a pasture, scouted the pasture, removed any poisonous plants, moved the sheep whenever they were running dry on pasture land, took water to the sheep to quench their thirst. He took care of all of their practical needs so that they could rest. Second, he had to protect them from any predators. A sheep will not lay down if it feels danger if it feels at risk. Shepherding is an interesting job. You didn't ever get a break as a shepherd. You lead the sheep to the pasture. They're starting to eat. You don't get to go home now. You don't get to go do your day job. You have to stay with them to protect them. The sheep will only feel confident. They'll only feel at peace if you are constantly there watching out for dangers. And then finally, you had to take care of any pests. Remember, sheep can be driven crazy by insects. So, what they would do in Israel in the ancient world is is that meant that during the summers, they would have to take the sheep far away from civilization up onto the sides of hills or mountains where it's cool. That's that's how they did it. So, you take them up to high pasture land. That meant that the shepherd is leaving civilization for weeks at a time. How do you think David had so much time to write the Psalms? Because he was a shepherd. And every summer he would leave everyone behind and go up with his sheep alone onto a high mountain to free them from pests so that they could rest, so that they could be at peace. The point of of this line of, of Psalm 23 is to tell us we have such an amazingly good shepherd, so diligent in his care for us that he takes care of every need we could possibly have so that we can be at peace. Now, whether we choose to be at peace or not, that's up to us, but God makes it possible. God so perfectly takes care of us that it is reasonable, it is natural for us to be at peace, to be willing to sit down and rest in his care. Now, David will make that same point in the next line. He says, he leads me to refreshing waters or or peaceful waters. Uh, Again, the the idea here in in the ancient world, you, you couldn't, well, and even today, you can't let a sheep drink from any source of water. specifically you can't let them drink from stagnant water because what the herd will do they'll step into that water to drink and sheep are not the cleanest of animals they will contaminate that still water with their waste and then they'll drink it and then they'll get sick and they'll die Sheep will drink from contaminated puddles and kill themselves. So the shepherd has to always be alert, moving the sheep to to water that is clean, that's refreshing. Specifically, the best is water that's moving. You know, you're looking for a moving river, so it's always clean. Now, if you know Israel at all, you know that there's not a whole lot of moving water in Israel. It's fairly dry. So what did that mean in the ancient world? It meant that usually the shepherd had to dig a well. Hear about that all through the Old Testament. The shepherd has to go to great effort, great lengths to dig wells and draw up by hand fresh water that he would literally give to each sheep individually. A cup of water to each sheep. That's how he watered them in the ancient world. Again, David's point is, look at the incredible care that Yahweh goes to for us to meet our needs. Now, the interesting thing about this particular line is, did you notice the sheep don't know they need fresh water? Sheep are perfectly content to drink from contaminated puddles that will kill them. They don't know any better. This is reminding us that Yahweh is so good that he often meets needs we're unaware of. We're content to go do something he knows it's not best. He and his goodness and his perfect wisdom and his perfect skill is always leading us to what's absolutely best in our lives. So that's the goodness of Yahweh as our shepherd. He provides for the needs we know of and for those we don't. He goes to incredible effort, incredible sacrifice To meet our needs. Now, the next line, David continues to to flesh this out to prove to us the care of Yahweh. Uh, The beginning of verse 3 is often spiritualized a bit. He he restores my soul. Literally, I think David is just saying, He restores my strength. That's how you can translate it. Um, He's looking at the fact that often in the ancient world, shepherds had to care for the weak members of their flock. Shepherds were unwilling to lose any sheep. Sheep can can be hurt. They can grow weak. A sheep can get cold if its wool gets wet. In that case, in the ancient world, what you do is, is the shepherd would pour wine into his cup and share the wine with the sheep. That's how he would warm up that cold sheep. Often, sheep would hurt a leg or be injured. The shepherd would then carry them either in their arms or over their shoulders until that sheep is strong. Shepherds were going out of their way in the ancient world to care for the weak among them to care for the weak members of their flock. They weren't willing to lose any. Again, David is pointing out how good God is. He provides the strength and the care that we need when we are weak. When we are weak, he is strong on our behalf. David continues in verse 3. He says, He leads me down right paths for the sake of his reputation. This is one where we really need to avoid the, the over-spiritualization. It's not paths of righteousness here. It's, it's just correct paths. Uh, you need to know a few things about shepherding to really understand the, this portion of the verse. Number one, shepherding in the ancient world or specifically in Israel, uh, you had to move your sheep a lot. You had to move your sheep often to find fresh pasture land, to escape the heat. You had to move them often Fact number two, you never wanted to move them too much, though, because the more you move them, the leaner they get. And your goal is not lean sheep. You want fat sheep. Okay, so, so a good shepherd knows he has to move the sheep a lot, but never wastes any, any movement, any direction. He never moves them beyond what they need. That's fact number two. Fact number three that we need to know. Uh, in ancient Israel, shepherding was a profession. It was a professional business. People had moved to cities and they hired out their sheep to shepherds, shepherds who were professionals whose reputation was staked on the health and weight of their sheep. Okay, so these shepherds would take care of their sheep. If they lost a sheep, the price of that sheep came out of their own pocket. That's why they cared for them so closely. They tried to get the sheep as fat as possible because that's how their business reputation grew. So David's point in this, in this verse is to basically say, um, God takes such perfect care of us. He is so wise as a shepherd. He knows the lay of the land so well that he always moves us at just the right time to just the right place, but he never moves you any further than you need to go. That's that's very comforting to me. God is telling me that he never takes me through anything that I don't need to experience. There's pain and suffering in my life. God tells me, I don't ever put pain and suffering in your life for no reason. I don't push you even half a mile beyond what you need. I take you directly in the best possible path exactly where I need you to be when I need you to be there. Nothing I bring into your life is pointless. It's all designed for your best to make you as healthy and fat as possible. Now, why does God do that? Why does God take such wise and tender care of us? Because his reputation is at stake. God has chosen to bind his reputation to our health and spiritual growth. The the almighty creator of heaven and earth has chosen to, to connect his reputation in the universe, his reputation before Satan and Satan's kingdom to your health, safety, and spiritual growth. That's the amazing grace of this. God has chosen to bind himself to you. That's why he cares for you so intimately. That's what verse three is getting at. Verse four is another verse that is often um, over-spiritualized. So so let me walk you through this. Really what David is saying here is, when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid of danger because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David is looking at a a reality of shepherding in Palestine, especially in ancient Israel. Um, If you wanted to move from one hill to another, what did you have to go through? A valley. A valley. You always had to pass through valleys. Now, valleys in ancient Israel, Israel did not used to be as dry as it is today. Valleys were very lush. You had large trees. You had lots of foliage. That foliage hid predators really, really well. So this was, this was the dangerous time as a shepherd moved his sheep from one pasture to another and had to go through a valley. This was when it got dangerous because he went through a place where predators could easily hide among the trees and, and jump out and, and kill the sheep. This was very risky, uh, moving the sheep. But David says, hey, I, I'm a sheep. And yet, even when I move through the deepest, darkest possible valley, I feel no fear. I, I am not afraid of anything. Why is that? Well, it's not because of David's strength. Remember, he's a sheep. He has no defenses against his enemies. It's because he doesn't go alone. He goes through that deep, dark valley with the shepherd. The shepherd is always with him. God is always with us in the darkest, deepest trials. Now, it's not just God's presence that assures us. It's also what he carries. Notice David mentions some tools of the trade of a shepherd. Uh, a staff was a six-foot-long pole with a crook at the end that the shepherd could wrap that crook around the neck of a sheep and pull him back from a ledge or pull him back from a dangerous, from, from any danger that there might be. So with the staff, he leads the sheep. And then with the rod... That's what's uh, in this guy's right hand is a long pole that was heavy. They would typically embed nails in the end of it and they would swing that thing at any attackers who came. So David's point here is he looks at God as his shepherd. He says, even in the worst possible circumstances, the darkest, deepest valleys of my life, I need not fear anything because number one, Yahweh is with me. The God, sovereign God of heaven and earth goes with me. And number two, he carries a really big stick. Our God carries a big stick. He carries infinite power to push back anyone who would attack us. God always wins, and he is always with us. So we have nothing to be afraid of in this life. That's David's point. So now he's, he's come to the end of his sheep-shepherd metaphor. He's trying to help us see, he's trying to convince us of what an incredible privilege it is that Yahweh, the creator of the universe, would choose to be our personal shepherd, how he takes such intimate, tender care of our every possible need. Now, David is going to continue to build those themes out in, in the next metaphor. Verses 5 and 6, David leaves behind the sheep shepherd metaphor and talks about the metaphor of a royal banquet, the, the feast of a king. And if we're going to appreciate verses 5 and 6, we need, again, a little bit of background. In the ancient world, eating with someone meant a lot more than it does today. Okay, obviously, being invited to, the, to this royal banquet, you would think you're going to get some good food and wine. Yeah, you would. It'd be real nice, the, the food, the spread that's put out before you. But the really nice thing of being invited to a banquet is that in the ancient world, when that happened, you came under the protection of your host. That's what it meant to be invited into their home. It expressed solidarity and alliance with the host. So so by inviting David into this house, basically David is saying, I am coming under the protection of the host. And since this is a royal banquet, it means I'm coming under the protection of the king. What David is talking about here is an incredibly rare privilege that a commoner, as he's picturing himself, just a commoner is welcomed into the table of the king, coming under the protection into the alliance of the king. That's what he has in mind here. So with that background in mind, let's look at the details. Verse five starts out, you set out a feast in front of me in the sight of my enemies. Uh, this is, is conveying to us that we're looking at a royal banquet. There's a lavish spread in front of David. The, the big, most important part here, though, is in the sight of my enemies. What David is picturing here, you gotta know a little bit about ancient architecture. There'd be this huge cavernous room. They don't have lights back then, so it's dark. But at the center of the room is is a fire. And around the fire are these tables where the king sits and David sits next to them. They are in the light. David and the king are in the light, enjoying fellowship together. Where are the enemies? They're back in the corners, In the shadows looking on. They may even be outside the banquet hall looking through the windows. They're looking on with anger because here is their enemy David dining with the king. But not only do they feel anger, they're beginning to feel fear. Because here's the man they've chosen to be an enemy with and yet he is now aligned with the king. He has now come under the protection of the ruler of their nation. Their lives could be in danger now. So David is talking about an incredible honor bestowed on him. He is now protected. He's under the security of the king. That honor is made public in the next line. You refresh my head with oil. It sounds a little odd to us, but it was very significant in the ancient world. If, if you wanted to honor someone publicly, you invited them to your house and you poured a mixture of oil and spices over their head. That, that not only showed them honor, but in a, in a world without deodorant, it was actually a really nice thing to do. Now you smelled good as this oil and spice dripped down. He says it's a really nice thing to do, it's a way to show great honor and privilege to, to your honored guest. Finally, the third line, as David draws this together, he says, my cup overflows. The picture here is, imagine you're, you're at a restaurant and the service is so attentive. It's so good that your cup never, you, you never drain your cup. You never even get halfway down. In fact, it's overflowing on the table because the service is so good. That's the idea. The, David's needs are so cared for. that It's so bountiful what's laid out before him that his cup is overflowing everywhere with the bounty of the king. So in verse 5, David pictures a night of of amazing blessing as he is honored and welcomed into the presence of the king, coming under the protection and provision of the king. But David's not done yet. He wants to continue to flesh this metaphor out in verse 6. He says, Surely your goodness and your loyal love will chase after me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord all of my days. Now, I want to give you uh, definitions of a few key words here. He starts out, surely, David is expressing confidence. I know that verse 6 will be true is what David is saying. Uh, The next key word, goodness. What is God's goodness? That is his favor towards us. God expressing kindness to us. That's what that word means. And loyal love, that's a very significant word in the Old Testament. Chesed is how that's pronounced. It appears often. It talks about God's faithfulness. Loyal love is not an emotion that, that God feels. It's a choice that God makes to always be perfectly faithful to those he places chesed upon so David is saying, I come under the loyal love, the faithfulness of God. Now, the really significant word is next. Surely your goodness and your loyal love will, as the NAS says, follow after me. That's, that's not really uh, the best translation. Literally, will chase after me. The irony of verse 6 is that that verb, chase after, is almost always a very bad word throughout the Old Testament. It's bad because it pictures literally a, a predator, chasing you down and devouring you. That's how the word is used. It's used to describe terror. You're being chased by a tiger. It's going to eat you and kill you. That's the idea of that verb. That, that verb we would expect to go with the, the predators in the, in the bushes of verse 4 or the enemies in the dark of verse 5. But David says, no, those aren't any threat to me. The only thing chasing me down in this life is the goodness and loyal love of God. Now, this this verse doesn't shock us, but it would have shocked them. They, in the ancient world, use this word every day to describe terror of being chased down by a predator. And David says, I am so blessed that not only am I safe from any predator, but the only thing in my life chasing me down, pursuing me, is the goodness and loyal love of God. God is so good to me. He's so gracious to me that no matter how far I run from him, his love will chase me down. This is meant to open our eyes and make us see, my goodness, how blessed are we. The only thing we have to fear being chased down by in this life is the goodness and love of God. Now, David goes on. He finishes this verse by reminding us this is not a one-night deal. This is not a one-night affair in the king's house. No, this is every day. Every night I enjoy the king's blessings at his table. All the days of my life I'm welcomed into the presence of God and cared for by him. So that's what Psalm 23 was meant to express to you. I hope that as we've gotten into the details some, it's helped you to see it again with fresh eyes, to leave behind your familiarity with Psalm 23 and see it as it was originally meant to be. Uh, Hopefully as we we see it, as they saw it, hopefully it will shock us a little bit. It's helpful to remember Psalm 23 was never meant to be inside a Hallmark card. Uh, It was meant to be subversive, to be shocking, to jolt us awake, to make us see, oh my gosh, I think I'm strong, but I'm a sheep. I take God for granted, and yet Yahweh's chosen to be my shepherd to welcome me into his table. It's meant to awaken us, to cure us of this disease of taking God for granted. It's meant to awaken us to how wonderful it is to be in relationship with God. I want to end by drawing this together in summary. Psalm 23 is really meant to teach us two astounding truths. Two shocking realities. Number one, a relationship with God is based on extravagant grace. Key word is extravagant there. A relationship with God is not based on a little bit of grace. It's not based on a medium amount of grace. It is based on over-the-top, unimaginable, extravagant grace. Do you notice in the six verses of this psalm, David does absolutely, totally nothing. David does nothing in this psalm. He simply receives blessings from God. You see the extravagant grace of God at work in the sheep-shepherd metaphor. First of all, in the distance between shepherd and sheep. You have the shepherd, this amazingly wise caregiver who is strong, who is capable, who is self-sufficient, and then you have sheep who are needy and weak and vulnerable, and yet the shepherd willingly condescends to live among them, to care for them, to meet their needs. That's incredible grace. But here's really the shocking part of of the sheep-shepherd metaphor. Both human shepherds and God as as our shepherd, uh, they both care for their sheep. They both sacrifice to care for their sheep. Now, human shepherds do that because it makes for good business. Human shepherds condescend to care for the needs of the sheep because they get a profit from it. The sheep provides wealth to that shepherd. The sheep provides something the shepherd needs. But is that true of God? Is that true of God? No. There is nothing that we give to God that he is in need of there is not anything that we give to God that he needs god needs nothing he is perfectly satisfied in himself the members of the trinity perfectly content within their own fellowship god did not create us because he was having a lonely day when god created us he chose even though he lacked nothing needed nothing he freely chose to create us and then to bind himself to us as our shepherd To bind his reputation to our care, to our health, to our spiritual growth. What incredible grace that is. We don't give anything to God that he needs. And yet he chose before time began to be a shepherd to each one of us individually. To sacrifice, to care, to give without end to meet our needs. That's incredible grace. Grace is also shown in the the royal banquet metaphor David did not offer anything to the king. He did not bring anything to the table. The king simply gave. The king was already king. There was nothing David could do for him. He simply, in grace, chose to give. So Psalm 23 is meant to waken us up, to shock us, to help us see with fresh eyes the extravagance of the grace of God. It is over the top. It is boundless. Second thing that it teaches us, second key truth, is that without God's constant care, we are utterly helpless you certainly see that in the sheep shepherd metaphor sheep are always sheep okay they can grow they can enlarge in size but they are always sheep they are always defenseless they are always vulnerable they are always foolish they are always weak and so are we now we can grow in our spiritual life we can become more like christ but we will always be sheep we will never reach some point in our lives where we become self-sufficient for even one minute you need, to, you need to let that, that deception go. You, you are not self sufficient. You may be well educated. You may be wealthy. You may be in control of your life. You're not self sufficient. We are constantly in every moment by moment need of God's grace. We can't take care of ourselves. We are not self sufficient creatures. We're dependent creatures. No matter how much we grow, we will always be sheep. You see that also in the royal banquet metaphor. Imagine with me, if you will, that David came to the house of the king one night and the king had grown bored of him. The king was no longer laughing at David's jokes, so the king kicks him out, closes the doors. David's on the outside. What'll happen to David? He's dead. His enemies have been waiting for him. Now he no longer rests under the favor of the king, so he's dead. Now, the the great uh, reminder for us is that so it is for us. If God, for even a moment, kicked us out of his family, kicked us out of his kingdom, we would be destroyed, we would be helpless. Now the great news is, we know from both Old and New Testament, God will never do that. Because of his chesed, his loyal love, he will always welcome us into his fellowship. But we need to remember, we can face our enemies, not because of our strength, but because God welcomes us into his presence. It's only because God has welcomed us to his table that we are alive, that we have any hope in life, because we too face powerful enemies. Satan prowls around seeking someone to devour. Like a hungry lion. That passage is not about unbelievers. It's about us. We as believers are incredibly weak. We are vulnerable and that will never change. We are moment by moment dependent on God's grace. That's the second thing that this psalm is meant to do. Especially relevant in today's age. We're so easily deceived into thinking that we're self-sufficient. That we're strong. That we're well-educated. That we can take care of ourselves. And that's not true. Moment by moment, we are desperately dependent upon God. Without Him, we are utterly helpless. So what I'd ask for you guys to do this week, let me draw this together with an application. I'm going to ask you to spend a little time, maybe half an hour, some point this week during spring break, please spend a little bit of time with Psalm 23. Please go back to it and read it again with fresh eyes. Imagine that you're hearing it for the very first time. You're hearing it as David gives it. You're you're there with him 3,000 years ago. Remember the background that I've given you today so that you can kind of wrap your mind around what exactly David is saying, and then just pray for God to to really do business with you, to really convict you and challenge you to no longer take him for granted, to see the extravagance of his grace, to see your utter helplessness. If God will teach us this, uh, it will really help us to avoid sin. It's interesting, Psalm 23 is not a list of things to do or or not do. There's none of that here. It's not a list of, of things to do. It's simply truths to believe truths about God and about ourselves that we need to believe and own because that's the foundation of our Christian life. If we can walk through life knowing and believing the extravagance of God's grace and our utter helplessness, then by nature, by reasonably, we will avoid sin. We will draw close to God because he is our shepherd and our king and we desperately need him. So please, sometime this week, spend some time with Psalm 23. Read it again for the first time. Let it shock you. Let it amaze you. This passage is meant to awaken us so that we no longer take God for granted. Let's pray for his help, that that would be true for us. Lord God, we do indeed thank you for your extravagant grace. We thank you that you have not given us a little bit of grace, you've not given us a medium amount of grace, Lord, but you've gone over the top. You've blessed us with boundless, infinite grace, most clearly expressed when you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord, the infinite one, to die for our sins. Thank you so much for the extravagance of your grace, especially in need of our vulnerability, Lord, of our weakness. We bring nothing to the table. We give you nothing that you need, and yet you freely choose to bless us. Help us remember how weak we are, Lord. Help us to remember this week, not for the point of being depressed, but for the point of walking in dependence, that we would cling to you moment by moment every day of our lives, recognizing how weak and helpless we are without you. Father, thank you that you are our strength. Thank you that you are with us moment by moment. Thank you that even though we often run away, you have caused your love and your goodness to pursue us like a wild animal chasing us down. Father, truly you are infinitely gracious and loving to us. Help us to recognize that. Help us to believe it. Help us not to take that for granted. Thank you that you've done all of this through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.